Father, there are some uh, magnificent prayers in the scriptures. And especially in the book of Ephesians, Paul will, will be writing and then he will suddenly, he, he will just suddenly begin to communicate your truth and it becomes not only instruction, but it's a prayer. And I'm thinking of that point where he says, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think, to him be glory in the church. We thank you for your great power. We thank you that there are no restrictions upon you other than your own perfect character. That means you cannot sin, you cannot do evil, you cannot lie. The Lord is good and does good. And you use trials and hardships and difficulties and challenges in our lives to help us to develop spiritual muscle, to get ready for what's next. You want us in shape spiritually because uh, we're in a battle. This battle never ceases, and it is possible and not all that unusual to get battle fatigue. And when we get tired and when we get worn out, and when we lose energy, it's very, very common right along with that to lose hope. we lose perspective. And it's easy to forget what you told to Jehoshaphat. The battle is not yours, but the Lord's. We're not in this by ourselves. As men who follow Christ and who love him and love his word and are attempting to utilize your wisdom in our daily decisions as we go about our lives and lead our families and function as citizens in a very, very broken and flawed world, we can get fatigued. But how grateful we are that you're with us and that we're not by ourselves. And there are times when it can particularly get tough. And we feel like we have experienced a number of defeats and setbacks and disappointments. And that's when it's easy to become hopeless. But we've got to use our minds and we've got to remember now to him who was able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think. In your wisdom, at certain times, you'll break through and astonish us and shock us and stun us and do more than anything we have ever thought or imagined. That is not every day 
but it occurs as it needs to occur. With that in mind, we don't have to lose hope. You've got your eye on us. You will sustain us. You will keep us going. We may feel hemmed in, and we may feel closed in, and we may feel that there is no way out, but that's how we may feel tonight, but your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Help us to think correctly. Help us to think straight. Help us to get our eyes in the right place. As we open your Bible tonight, teach us, instruct us. You know what we need, and you'll supply what we need. So we thank you for this, in Jesus' name, amen. Don Sanukian is a, he's been a pastor and a seminary prof and very, very gifted, very gifted gentleman. I remember years and years ago hearing Don Sanukian tell a story <clears throat> down at Dallas Seminary about his uh, grandparents. Sanukian is an Armenian name. The uh, nation of Armenia well, they went through a holocaust like the Jews did in the early 1900s. Not as many were slaughtered, but they went through a holocaust. And uh, many Armenian people came to the United States, many of them to California. His grandparents were farmers in the Central Valley, the Central San Joaquin Valley of California. And he was telling the story that as a boy, he loved to go to their farm in the summer, even though it was blazing hot. He loved to go and work and be with them and jump in the swimming pond, and he just loved it. And as he was recounting their influence on his life, he was a young boy, and they were well into their 80s, He said, they had a ritual every night after dinner. And as dinner was finishing up, his grandfather would get up, go over to his grandmother and pull back her chair, help her out of her chair, and then they would hold hands. And they were aging, both had hands that were gnarled and twisted up from arthritis. And he said it was a wonderful thing to see those two old gnarled arthritic hands grasp each other. And then what they would do is they would walk, they'd take a walk around their farm. As um, the sun was going down and it was gonna get cooler, they would just walk slowly, and they would talk, and they would converse, and he thought that was the neatest thing, and it kind of is. 
They loved each other. And then as Paul Harvey used to say, and now the rest of the story. He went on to say that as a young boy, he thought, that's the kind of marriage I want to have one day. I want to grow old with my wife, and there will be an obvious love. As he got into his teens, and then he got into his 20s, at a certain point, he was talking with his mother, and this subject came up about their, the marriage of the grandparents and how special it was, how sweet it was. And she said, well, Don, you're old enough now that I can tell you some things. It wasn't always that way. You know, don't you, that they had an arranged marriage. And he did know that. But what he didn't know is that even though they were both Christians, they really didn't like each other. And you say an arranged marriage. Oh, an arranged marriage? How old school is that? My gosh. Arrang They'd never been on a date. They'd never spent any time together, just the two of them by themselves. You see how it used to be is that a, a father, there might be another family, a farm or two away, and on a particular day he would uh, hitch up the horse and buggy and take a drive down there and see the father and, uh, and husband and you know, start talking. He said, you know, my boy's seven, eight years old and uh, that sure sweet little five-year-old daughter you've got there, and, and they'd start talking. And before you know it, they'd arranged a marriage. That's how it was. That's how things were done. And you might be sitting here saying, oh, well, how? How old school, how old-fashioned, how primitive, how? I can't imagine that. You know, they did that for a reason. They thought marriage was such an important decision that you could not leave it up to young people. But you see, of course, we've departed from that because we're so much more educated and intelligent and wise. And so we have completely left that. In many situations, the parents have absolutely no input, no, because you see, it's that young girl's or young man's decision. And, and by the way, how is that working out for us? That shift in strategy. Well, his grandparents really didn't like each other, and his mother started telling him stories about how that sweet grandmother of his had a blazing hot temper. And it was not unusual from time to time for a plate to go flying across the kitchen. It was not unusual for his voice to be raised and but see, he wasn't aware of that. What, what, what he uh, had witnessed was two people who really didn't like each other, who really didn't get along, but he witnessed two people who believed that divorce was not an option. It just wasn't an option, so they stayed together. And <clears throat> there are a lot of vineyards in central California and along the coast and up north in Napa. 
There were vineyards everywhere. Uh, the, the best juice is not when it's fresh. The very, very best is when it has seasoned and matured, and, and that's what happens in marriage. We want to stick with uh, our discussion of marriage. We're going through, if you're with us for the first time, we're going through a study on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20, and then they're stated again, they're stated again in Deuteronomy 5. But we are on the seventh commandment, which says in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And as we have mentioned here, every time we have been on this topic of you shall not commit adultery, the purpose of this commandment from God was to protect the sanctity of marriage, was to protect that, that fundamental building block of all human culture and society, it's the family. And God invented it, he owns it, he has the copyright, he has the patent, that's God's doing. Families are based on marriage. Marriage comes from God. You shall not commit adultery because adultery is a toxin that destroys the fundamental building block of human society. So last week, <clears throat> I gave you an outline with two points. We really didn't spend that much time on it. I'm gonna to return to the outline tonight and dig a little deeper. Uh, so the same outline as last week, very simple outline, two points. First point is this, what marriage should be what marriage should be, and then secondly, and you'll find the logic of this um, remarkable for the second point, what marriage shouldn't be. I spent hours on that. <laughs> Actually, that didn't take long. But it's pretty simple because, you see, the issue is pretty simple. God is the one who invented marriage, and he, and God says, it should be this way. But so many times, it's the way that it shouldn't be. We've looked at this before. I'd like to flip over there again in Deuteronomy 5, where the Ten Commandments are stated again. But in Deuteronomy 4, he says to them before he restates the Ten Commandments, 439, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today. Watch this, that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time. These commandments are for our benefit. And when God says, you shall not commit adultery, our, our, our culture has absolutely no problem with adultery. We have no problem with sexual anarchy. No problem whatsoever. In fact, if, if in any way, shape, or form, we feel like that sexual freedom, anarchy, 
is impinged upon, there's great trouble. And there is great pushback. And th there is great uh, frustration. And it, in fact, it will not be, they will not stand for it. B because there is nothing more important than complete human autonomy and freedom to do whatever one wants to do. But you see, that doesn't work out well for anybody. It doesn't work out well for the individuals involved in the wrong relationship. It doesn't work out for children. It doesn't work out for anybody. God says, this is my moral command. It's for your benefit and for the benefit of your children. This is what you call old school stuff. But it's old school stuff that is true and is righteous and is holy. And it is the glue that God has put in place to hold together human relationships. And when we depart from it, people get hurt, maimed, devastated, wounded in tragic ways. So, Let's go to the first one tonight. What marriage should be. Now, last week, we spent a little time on 127 and 128 of Psalms. And I want to go back there. But first, I want to go to Psalm 1. There are 150 Psalms. The... The first psalm is an introduction to sort of the overall theme of the book of Psalms. And that theme is that there are two ways to live. There are two kinds of men and there are two ways to live. So in Psalm 1, it starts out by saying, this is the first psalm. This is right out of the blocks. Uh, in, in, in my Bible, the introduction says above verse 1, the righteous and the wicked contrasted. Uh, you see this all the way through Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew uh, 7, at the end of the Sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the wise man, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. When the storm comes, your house survives. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man. So throughout Scripture, you've got a contrast between the wise and the foolish, between the righteous and the wicked. You've got it right here in Psalm 1, and it runs all the way through Psalms. How blessed is the man, and it's interesting, it starts with the negative. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel. Everybody in here has those, uh, you listen to their advice uh, you read their blogs, you read their books. Uh, there might be a commentator on the news or somebody you like, you know, whatever. But you've got counselors. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, of those who don't know the Lord, who don't believe in him, who live contrary to his ways, who have philosophies that are contrary to what the word of God says. You are blessed if you don't listen to that counsel. And we are inundated with it 24-7. 24-7. You send your kids off to a college unless they're based on the word of God and committed to Christ, 
they are going to be blitzed with the foolishness of the world. Okay. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. And then it's going to hit it one more time. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, in the word of God. And in his law, in his word, he meditates, he ponders, he thinks both day and night. And he shall be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers, he's fruitful, he has favor. Doesn't mean he doesn't have difficulty or hardship, but he's got the favor of God on him because he's listening to what God says and he's listening to God's command. And when you listen to God's commands and you obey them, things go better for you and for your children. Verse four, the wicked are not so. They're not like that. But they're like chaff which the wind drives away. Chaff is just worthless. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Ah, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, that, that goes something else Jesus said. Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. There are two ways, two paths. The broad way, isn't it interesting, in New York, you got a street called the Broadway. Well, that was a stroke of brilliance. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. And a lot of people on that Broadway are going the wrong way. Before we go to Psalm 127, go to Psalm 49. What's being taught here is the folly of trusting in riches. You see, once again, in the Ten Commandments, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Money can become a god. So it is discussing this. You get to verse 5. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? My enemies. Even those who trust. Now, here you go. Even those who trust in their wealth. See, throughout Scripture, the righteous... Those who know the Lord, their trust is in him. Proverbs 3, 4 and 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways, and he shall direct your path. So the question really is, who do you trust? Where's your trust? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches... Watch this. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Uh, you can have all the money in the world, but you don't get eternal life by writing a check. You can't do it. Humans cannot obtain their own salvation. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. You're not going to do it by works. Go, let's go on. Verse 10. For he sees that even wise men die, the wise of the world, the philosophers, the sages, 
the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought, now this is fascinating. Their inner thought, the wealthiest people in the world, those who, quote unquote, have been successful, those who have been on the cover of Forbes, not once, not twice, but many times, the lives of the rich and famous. Well, he's going to peel back and go into their brains. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever. And their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names, but man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish. We talk about financial planning, and that is a good thing and a wise thing. Um, it's good to plan. It's good to plan for retirement. Um, some do other, better than others at that. There are those who have planned extremely well for retirement and are absolute fools when it comes to eternity. They have absolutely and completely deceived themselves. Because, you see, their inner thought is that their houses are forever. And they're not. Uh, Mark 8, what shall it profit a man? When I heard on the radio, I was on my way to speak in California. I got in a rental car, turned on the radio, and Steve Jobs had just died. And when I heard that, Mark 8 came to my mind. For what shall it profit a man? if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul. That is a tragedy. Uh, look at verse 16, if you're still in Psalm 49. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away, nothing His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. What a, what a tragic and unnecessary ending to the script that each man writes for his own life. Now, let's go to Psalm 127 and 128. And yes, we were there last week. But you know, if you have a dairy farm, you just don't milk that cow one day a week. <clears throat> so here we are back at the udder of... Uh, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Uh, who, who is being referenced here? A husband and wife, that's who's being referenced. You, you say, well, well, how do you know that? You know that, and keep your finger there, this is called Bible study, so we turn the pages and study the Bible because Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, so go to Genesis 1. 
go back to the beginning. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. Well, who's in the house? I mean, who's laboring? All right, this all goes back to what God did. God created this whole thing. It, <clears throat> it didn't exist, none of it. The stars, the moon, the sun, none of it existed, none of it. No oceans, no land, no mountain, nothing. And there was an explanation in Genesis that once again, we laugh at and mock and just ha, 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 you, 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 you know, there's no way. There's just no way. All things, all things were created by him and for him and through him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you get the description of what he did on each day. And then you get to Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, let me say this. That one verse is pretty basic, and in past generations, you might hear a sermon on that. Uh, you wouldn't hear a sermon series on that, but today, you could do a six-month sermon series just on that verse. Because it's under incredible dispute. And our little children are being taught that's not true. So you better be on the offensive before they hear that, and you better give them the truth. Because it's the, it's the job of a father and a grandfather to teach the children. That's our job. And you can, well, they're in a good school. You don't know that. I mean, you might think they are, and hopefully they are, but um, even if they are, it's your job to teach. That's Psalm 77, by the way. That we teach the next generation. Uh, then you get to 28. God blessed them, uh, 128 of Genesis. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Oh, the earth, the earth's going to be gone in 10 years. The earth's going to be gone in 12 years. The earth, is, the earth is fine. The earth is under a curse because sin came into the world, and guess who cursed the earth? God. And the whole creation groans. That's Romans 8. But there will be a new heaven and a new... Oh, that's interesting. And God will sustain it. And because of what God said to Noah... Never again will, will the earth go under destruction like it did. And, okay, this is stuff God has said. You see. We have young people raised in Christian homes that really, truly, truly, truly believe that the earth is, may not last and will be destroyed in their lifetime, for sure in the lifetime of their kids. How do we get into this? We were in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So, okay, so how in the world, why are there houses? Because God created the world and God created people and God created the fundamental unit called the family comprised of a husband, a wife, and children. Be fruitful and what? Multiply. 
There was a time when none of this existed and God instituted all of it. So, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Because you see, once again, there's two kinds of people. There are those who trust in the Lord and there are those who don't trust in the Lord. And there are a lot of people building houses and they've got children and they've got kids and they're working their tails off. But you see, some of them trust in the Lord and some of them don't. And this says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So if you build and work and do all you can to provide and do this and this and this, it is, in terms of eternity, an utter waste. If you have not joined yourselves with the living God, because all that you have, it's, it's a wisp of what's on this earth. And eternity, when you're a hundred billion years into eternity, you're just getting out of the starting blocks. So you're talking about marriage here. A Christian husband and wife made in the image of God who trust in the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain and build it. Unless the Lord guards, unless the, Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Now, we're to work hard. Colossians 3, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ, as the Lord Christ whom you serve. So whatever your work, whatever your career, whatever your job responsibilities are, you work hard. You're working for Christ. You, you want to do the best possible job. If Jesus were to come and inspect your work or to look at that plan you put together or whatever it is, those, those sewage drains that you put in there, you'd want him to say, well done. Wouldn't you? Sure you would. And you work hard. Thessalonians says, Make it your ambition to lead, to lead a quiet life and to work with your hands. Back then, that's all they could do was work with their hands. There was no tech, there was no knowledge stuff. I mean, you know, unless you were a scribe or something, but even those guys worked with their hands. So we work and we work hard. But you see, <laughs> when you trust in the Lord, you've got a God who promises you work your tail off and you do the best you can do. But you talk about a safety net. You talk about a benefits package. He gives to his beloved even in their sleep. When you're conked out, you don't even know what state you're in. What's he doing? He's awake and his eyes upon you and it's upon your children. The eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, on those who hope and wait for his loving kindness. He's got you. He knows your needs. He knows everything about you. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. All of them. In his way, in his time. Yeah, but Steve is getting really, really tight. I'm sure it is. That's how you build faith. Now, I mean, it's tight. It's getting really tight. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will, answer, and you will honor me. Anybody in here ever been in a tight, 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 tight place? There's no stinking way to get through it. And you got through it? Yeah. 
That's because he's a savior. He's a deliverer. But not everybody has that because not everybody wants him. And then back to three. Uh, see, so why are we in this? We're talking about marriage. Because we're in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Why not? Because it destroys marriage. And God wants to keep marriage and keep it holy and keep it sanctified and protect marriage. Why? Because it destroys trust. And when you don't have trust, you can't have a good marriage. You can't have a good family. So God's telling us, don't go that way. Don't go down that. You're like an ox going to the slaughter. This is everyday stuff. This is as practical and as real as anything you could possibly read or ponder today. This is about how to live right now. Isn't it? And now he's going to get the kids. Uh, behold, children are a gift from the Lord. That's not what our culture says. We murder them. Because we want sexual freedom and sexual anarchy and sexual gymnastics without any kids. Because they hinder us and they mess up our lifestyle. So we just go ahead and murder them. Now we go ahead, they'll come out. Now they've come out. These guys are showing their true colors. And well, you know, yeah, even after they're born, we'll kill them. Uh, there's a commandment that has something to do with that, isn't there? Yeah, the previous commandment, thou shalt not murder. God's got his eye on that. Now, if you had your girlfriend or your wife do that, and you abhor it, and you hate it, you run to Christ. There's forgiveness with him, as far as the east is from the west. Your sins and lawless needs, I will remember no more. He'll put your sins, my sins, in the deepest part of the sea. He's the Savior. Why would you not want him in your life? Why would you not want him? We've all sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We just sin in different ways. But see, now this is real life stuff. Little children are a gift from the Lord, the fruit, the fruit of the womb. I almost said the fruit of the loom. I didn't want to say that. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Not in our culture. Like Errol's, uh, Erwin Lutzer, I was reading a book he did before gay marriage was legalized. He was talking about what could happen in all this. Anything he writes is great, Erwin Lutzer. He was telling the story about uh, one of his associate pastors. He pastored Moody Church, Moody Church in Chicago for years. And one of his associate pastors on a Saturday, he and his wife took the little baby in the carriage and their two little other little children. And just north of the church is Lincoln Park. And it was a nice day, so they went for a walk in the park. And as they're walking through the park, you know, just walking, little family, an elderly lady on a bench, this elderly lady on the bench yells out, it's a family, it's a family. Why would she say that? Because it's something that is rarely seen in downtown Chicago. That's why. If you're sitting on a park bench and a car goes by and it's a 1927 Model T fully restored, you might, and you're a car guy, you might go, it's a Model T. It's a Model T. And you get excited. Why? 
because there aren't many of them around anymore. That's kind of where we are. They had kids. They had three kids. Three. Can you imagine it? The responsibility of feeding and clothing and sheltering and providing and educating three kids. When will you ever get back to Hawaii? When will you ever get that new car? When will you, you see, it's just foreign to us in our culture. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Every large city in Israel had gates because every large city in Israel had something called a wall. Kind of interesting. They just didn't have gates just there by themselves. Just there, just there. There was a wall. It was to protect those inside and keep their enemies out. It's kind of an interesting concept. But see, even today, why are we laughing? Because we have lost our minds. When you reject God, you go insane. Romans 1. People are given over. When they reject the truth of God that they know to be true and reject it and reject it and reject it and reject it and reject it, they are given over to reprobate, unthinking, irrational, illogical minds. We're seeing it every day. Is it not amazing how relevant the Word of God is? Everything happened at the gates. It was the banking center, the financial center, the judicial center. And as a man gets old and feeble, and sometimes you're not as sharp as you used to be, man, and you got two strapping three, four, five sons, you're blessed. Because you go to the gates with your sons. And you're not sharp as you used to be, but they are. Children are, are arrows we shoot into the next generation. It's good stuff. I love this stuff. See, that's generational. That's generational. That's generational. When we think about marriage, we think about today, where we are in our marriage, and we think about, am I happy? We think about, are my needs being met? Yeah. But you've got to think bigger than that, and you've got to think wider than that. Because the way God designed marriage is that he designed it. You've got to get a wide-angle lens. It's generational. Some have been blessed with godly parents, godly grandparents. I, I'm, I'm one of those. It's just the sure blessing of God. But you see, if you don't have that, you come to know Christ and see, you get to be the guy who puts a new link in the generational chain, and now you're going to start a new, there's going to be a, a new direction in your generational chain. Because you see, well, Steve, I'm on my third marriage. I've been divorced two times. I've been divorced three times. I'm, are you married now? Yeah. Then make this one work. And eliminate divorce as an option. Will that be hard? Yes. 
Will God help you? Yes. More on that later. You may not leave them a lot of money, but leave them that. You see? And you say, oh, but I'm just, it was terrible. I, I, I'm, I was the problem with those other divorces. Show them, show them how Jesus changed a man, changes a man's heart. Show it to them. Let them see it. Let them see it. Let speak volumes. Psalm 128. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Does everyone fear the Lord? No. But if you do, you're blessed. Because the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. You're going to have benefits. You're going to have things. You're going to have privileges that others don't have because they don't want what God has. They want to do it their way. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. <clears throat> when you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, watch this, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Everybody in the world wants to be happy and they want it to be well with them. But there's only one way to get that and that's this way. God's way. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Proverbs 16. Now, here we go. We're back in the family. We're still in the home from 127. Your wife will be, uh, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion, Jerusalem. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem in the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. See, not only are we blessed in this life, and Obviously, it doesn't mean we're pain-free. It doesn't mean we don't have troubles or difficulties or tribulations or heartache. We have all of those things. Jesus told us we would have those things in this life, but there is another life coming if you know Christ. But see, those who think they don't need him, they think that they will go on forever, yet they deceive themselves we live in a secular country with a secular educational system, a secular government, everything's secular. Secularism believes this is the only world that there is. Jesus said, there's another world. But even in this life, you can have the favor of God. You can see the goodness of God. You can see the blessing of God. In spite of the troubles, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the hardships, they're designed to mature us and to cause us to grow. And God oversees every single one of them. And every one of them has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We're not constantly afflicted. We are greatly blessed. This is in the context of marriage. This is what marriage should be. And this is what children and grandchildren should see. That when it gets tough... You stay together. When it gets hard, you don't run. This takes sacrifice. It takes forgiveness. It takes tears. It takes honesty. It takes painful conversations. It takes vulnerability. It takes transparency. All under the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that we, as we have received and we give to one another. That's what it's supposed Dysfunctional families don't deal with reality. Functional families deal with reality. 
You deal with your stuff and you ask God for wisdom in dealing with it. But you stay together. And see, I want to I drive a Mack truck through this. Those kids need to see you stick it out when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it's painful. And see, we've got a little different situation going on now because it used to be you couldn't divorce. Again, we've got to say this because it's, it's a major change. It used to be you couldn't get a divorce without your spouse's permission. So if one spouse was going crazy, the other one was sane, and they would tether them and keep them from going off the cliff. But all restraints have been removed, as you know now. But as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, especially your spouse. Work out your stuff. If, if she wants to go, you can't stop her. But do everything you can do to reconcile. And sometimes there's nothing else you can do. But at least you can. And even if they leave, what you can do is 1 Peter 3. Let's flip over there. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 is addressed to wives. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 is addressed to husbands. And in verse 8, he sums up the instruction that he's given to husbands and wives. And he says in 1 Peter 3, 8, to sum up, to sum up, let all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Watch this, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So even if she leaves and takes the kids and is poisoning your kids with things that are not true about you, don't you return evil for evil or insult for insult. Don't you do it. You show them what a follower of Jesus does. And he will bless your life. And when those kids get old enough, they're going to figure some stuff out. And they're going, to, they're going to see some things they can't see now. But it's going to come out. Second point. What marriage shouldn't be. Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. What marriage shouldn't be. And we just briefly talked about this last week. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So, you guys still with me tonight? Pretty heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? But it's important stuff. So if you can find Matthew, just go to the left and you'll run into Malachi. And as we said last week, God is indicting the priests, the spiritual leaders of the nation for their uh, double standard. Uh, and by the way, if you're a husband and you're a father or you're a grandfather, you're the spiritual leader of your home and of your family. Every family is a small civilization. Every family is a small church. And as the father and as the grandfather, you're the, you're the uh, pastor. You are the senior pastor. You are the pastor emeritus. So this is for us. And he is indicting them. And then, and I'm just going to summarize this. 
what happens in chapter 2, verse 10, there is great sin going on in their homes and in their families. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do you deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? What does that mean? They were in covenant with God, and they were supposed to live a certain way in their homes. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. What was happening is, and then it goes on, and it says, As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. What was happening, so here, we've already mentioned this tonight. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. They were marrying women from foreign tribes around them who had other gods, and God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And they were the spiritual leaders. They'd given themselves permission to do that. Uh, Some commentators believe that what they were doing were leaving their wives by covenant, their Hebrew wives, and going after these other women in surrounding nations. And the Lord says to them in verse 13, because of this, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groanings, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. They're, they're still going through the religious exercises, you know, doing the, the, the whole worship thing, the religious thing. Yet you say, well, why is the Lord not regarding our offerings? Because, watch this, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God watches how men treat their wives. It's important to him. We were just in 1 Peter 3, in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and you're physically stronger, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In the Old Testament, God watched how men who claimed his name would treat their wives, and he does it in the New Testament. And if you are treating your wife in a way, without understanding, not granting her honor, and as the Spirit of God convicts you, you're sloughing it off and ignoring it, you can pray till you're blue in the face and 40-day fast, and he's not answering and responding to you at all. Oh, Lord, I just want your will. Then live with your wife in an understanding way. I haven't sinned in 12 years. Maybe 12 seconds. Is that hard to do? Yeah. Marriage is hard. Marriage goes, marriage, you go through phases. You go through stages. You go through menopause. You say, what do you mean you? Is that plural? Yeah. It is, because she's going, she's going through it and she's taking you with her. And things are a little different for a while. And she can't even explain it to you because there are changes going on within her and it's just life. What does she need then? She needs a guy to understand her and to back off 
And, you know, do you get it right all the time? No. When you get it wrong, what do you do? You love her and you ask her forgiveness and you tell her you're sorry and, you, and mean it. And you confess it to the Lord. Nobody's got this nailed. Verse 15, but not one has done so by, the, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. In other words, when the Spirit of God's in your life, you're going to respond to the Spirit of God, and that's not going to be your habit. You're going to work on it. I'll be honest with you. For about a, the last year, I've been taking some medication to help me be more focused. Because I've always been scattered my whole life. And I thought, I need more focus. And I read up on this stuff, and so I've been on it. I just got off it for several reasons. One of them was it made me excessively angry. It did. And I actually looked it up, and that was one of the uh, side effects. Isn't it amazing, those medical commercials? Well, this is a wonderful drug, but it'll kill you. It'll do this. You'll get leprosy. Your eyeballs will fall out. You know, anyway. What that stuff did for me, it made me very intense. And I'm already intense. I don't need more intensity. And I would react strongly at home. And I realized, you know what? I can't do this. If I'm more scattered, I'm more scattered. But I can't live with Mary in an understanding way because she gets the wrath. And that's evil. And it's sin. That's the truth. You just can't let that go on because God won't bless you. And then he goes on, 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. You say, what does that mean? Okay. There's a, in the Old Testament, there was a, there's a book called Ruth. This is very interesting because Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Moab. They were the enemies of Israel. They had a god called Chemosh who was sick, evil, wretched, deviant, sexually. Little girls were not safe in Moab because it was all right for priests to take them and use them and use them as sexual slaves. But because Naomi's husband took the family into Moab, one of the sons met Ruth, married. Her husband dies. The two sons, she had two daughter-in-laws. She realizes she's got to get back home. She tells the girls to stay. Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Watch this. And your God shall be what? My God. And they go home. And there's a guy named Boaz. who's a picture of Jesus a type of Jesus, a balanced male who serves and loves. He's a distant relative. At a certain point, Naomi says, you go to his home, and as he's sleeping, you lay down next to him. Let's just do that wasn't sexual, wasn't perverted, it was, that's, it was a different culture. And what he did, he woke up and realized who it was, it was Ruth. 
And he had known her, he interacted with her, knew her background. And there was a covering put over her. It was a, and then he said, tomorrow, I will take care of this. And he went through the legal statutes necessary to make her his wife. She was from another nation. But your God shall be my God. You see? But that covering was for protection, for safety. It was for security. See, that's what husbands are supposed to do. They cover their wives with protection and safety and security. They don't do violence. They, they don't treat her in treacherous ways. They don't divorce on a whim. And see, really, that's what was going on here. If you read the commentaries, there's no doubt what was happening is they were divorcing their wives on a whim just like we do today. And that women can do backwards uh, the same way. God says, I hate that. What's interesting is that <clears throat> she married Boaz. You know, they have these genealogies in the Bible, and when you come across them, you kind of just go, you know. But what's really interesting about these genealogies is you, you got all kinds of interesting stuff. Like, for instance, in Matthew 1, verse 5, Salmon, Salmon, is like the fish. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. Do you see how marriage is not just what is before you right now, today, what you're dealing with. It's generational. We're modeling, we're teaching, we're instructing by how we live our lives. If there's ever been a time where children and grandchildren needed a godly, living, model of what God says it's the time that we're living in right now. We teach by what we say and we teach by how we behave. I'm not going to read this to you but there's a pastor in Canada named Daryl Dash. He has a blog and he wrote an article it was very good called The Kind of Man I'd Like to Become and he basically said, I've always had dreams about the kind of man I'd like to be and about being, you know, accomplishing and having a large reputation and doing big things. And he said, but now I look around and I realize that those are really deficient dreams. Um, they're really bad dreams. They're really counterfeit dreams. Um, And then he lists five things. He says, as I get older, I have a different set of dreams. Number one, I want to love Christ. I want to love him and I want to know him. That's my dream. 
Secondly, I want to grow in humility and in love for others. I don't want to think higher of myself than I should, as Romans 12.3 says. And I want to do this in my family. Number three goes right with that. I want to love my family well and run life with a few good friends. <laughs> I like that. That is so well put. I want to love my family well and run life with a few good friends. There's this thing called Facebook. And I don't do Facebook. Someone does it for me. But anyway, I don't, I don't do it. But I understand one of the deals is you want to get as many friends as you can. Why? Number four, this is wisdom. And this fits with what we've been studying. I want to invest in the next generation. Psalm 71, 18 says, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And fifthly, I want to serve. I just want to serve. I, I was recently having lunch with a friend, and we were just talking about where we are in life and what's going on. And in essence, that's what he said to me. We were talking about guys who just retire and quit and just, and don't, you know, if you retire and quit and you're not productive, you last about two years. Now, you may do something different, you know, but you, you got to be productive. And, and in our conversation, he said, you know what I'm really trying to say? I, I want to remain, I want to serve. I love serving. Yeah, see, that's what this guy's saying. Those are good dreams. One day we're going to die. We'll go to be with the Lord, but those little ones that we love and our kids that are getting older will continue. There was a man named George McCluskey. Some of you know this story. George McCluskey loved the Lord. Um, was, he and his wife were blessed with little girls. He was a pastor, and one day it struck him, his little girl, his girls were small, that one day, I mean, it was going to come soon, his daughters were going to become young women, and they were going to get married. And so he began to pray every day between 11 and 12. He was a pastor, and he set aside that time to pray for his church, for people, for Spiritual leaders pray, and he had a great responsibility. So that was a disciplined part of his day. He added to his prayer list his daughters. And he prayed that his daughters would come to know Christ and that they would marry godly young men who loved Jesus Christ so that they could establish a Christian family and a Christian marriage and do it the right way. And he just began to do that. And after a few years went by, it struck him that, well, you know, gosh, they'll get married and they'll have kids. I haven't prayed for their kids. So he started praying for, the, for his grandchildren. His daughters weren't even married yet. But he started praying for his grandchildren that the Lord would give. 
And he prayed two things, that they would come to know the Lord, be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and saved from their sins by the Lord Jesus, and that they would have spouses that love the Lord Jesus Christ and they would establish Christian homes. And then he added on the next generation and started praying for them. Here's what happened. His daughters both became Christian, married young men who loved the Lord Jesus Christ and interestingly in love. Each daughter married a young man who became a pastor. He didn't ask for that. The Lord just kind of threw it in. And then they had children, and all of those children came to know the Lord, and when they grew up, they married Christian believers. All of the girls married young men who became pastors. All of the young men became pastors. He didn't ask for that. God just threw it in. Then came the next generation. The first two were boys, young boys, and they knew the family history and they were feeling the pressure. Now, they both knew the Lord. They were roommates in college together, but they were figuring out their future. And pretty early on in, in college, the one boy decided, the cousin decided he was gonna become a pastor. And the other boy really started feeling the heat. He had absolutely no interest in becoming a pastor. He, he was inclined to study psychology. And he struggled with it because everybody else in his family was in ministry. But he felt like he should do that, and he kept doing it. Went on, got a master's, went on, got his doctorate. Never did go into the ministry. But a lot of people feel that James Dobson has had a ministry. <laughs> I think you could say James Dobson's in the ministry. But he didn't take the normal route. And I remember Dr. Dobson reading something that he wrote, and he said, you know, it's amazing what God has done over the years through the ministry. And he said, people thank me. He said, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about a man I never met who prayed for me before I was ever born. Before my mother and father were ever born. Because you see, it's all generational. And how we live today counts, even when we're gone. So Father, help us. As men who name your name, there are guys in here with, with families, and I, I know this is hard for guys whose families have been, quite frankly, taken away from them. And they do all they can do to be connected with their kids. But there are restraints from a court. I pray, Lord, you would give them double mercy and double favor in their relationship with those children. And I pray that when those children are with them, they would have a sense of safety and security and love and of great light because it may be in their other situation there's darkness. Keep your hand on those children. And as the years go by, do your work in their lives. 
we can't save anyone. We can't save ourselves. So we turn to you, who is the Savior, and ask you to do the work that only you can do. Help us in our family responsibilities. Keep our hearts tender before you. Let us be. Let us be quick to hear and slow to speak and quick to obey and quick to confess sin when we're wrong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.